Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Sarah Worthington, pro-director at the LSE. Howard Davies, the director, would normally chair this lecture and introduce Amartya Sen, but he's out of the country, so um, luckily the privilege falls to me. But on his behalf, I want to welcome you all here to the London School of Economics for the final Space for Thought lecture. This Space for Thought lecture series was organized to celebrate the completion of the new academic building. And it's a series that's taken place over the past academic year. We're delighted in that series to have hosted a wide range of speakers from all over the world. We've had people like Neil Ferguson, who uh, incidentally will take up a post here next year, Professor Catherine McKinnon, Professor Paul Collier, and the eminent historian, <coughs> Professor Wang Gung Wu. For anyone who's missed any of the lectures, and those are only some of them, most of them are available as either videos or podcasts on the LSE events website. And indeed, tonight's lecture is being streamed live because you are the lucky few who are here face to face with Professor Amartya Sen. I know that uh, when tickets went up on the website, we had about 800 requests within five minutes. So it wasn't very good for the website, um, and those of you who managed to get a ticket are exceedingly lucky. It's particularly fitting that the final speaker in this lecture series should be Professor Amartya Sen. He's had such close links with the LSE. For those of you who don't know, he was a member of staff here at school. He is an honorary fellow of the LSE, and it really is a pleasure to welcome him back here tonight to close this series. Before I hand over to Professor Lord Nicholas Stern to introduce Amartya, I just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the support of the LSE's annual fund and those who donate to it, because it was their financial support that enabled this lecture series to take place. And finally, one bit of organization. After this lecture series, after this lecture, to close the series, we will be having a reception outside, drinks reception, to which you are all invited. It isn't a condition of the invitation that you buy a copy of Amartya's book, um, but if you do, he will be there signing copies for you. So without more ado, I'll hand over to Professor Lord Stern to introduce Amartya. If I could um, add my voice to um, that of Sarah's in welcoming you all here, um, I'm not going to give a long uh, introduction because we're here to talk to and listen to Amartya. But I wanted to emphasize uh, the talk to or talk with because uh, the idea of this gathering is to have an interchange. So Amartya will talk for 20 or 25 minutes on the subject um, of his book, his new book. Um, the idea of justice, and then I'll ask a few questions, and depending on how long the answers are, that might take another 20 or so minutes, and then we'll have about um, half an hour or so for to and fro. So we deliberately asked Amartya to keep his own presentation brief, I'm sure he will, and uh, so that we can spend... 
spend our evening uh, talking to each other. Um, I've known Amartya now uh, for something like uh, 40 years, um, including very early on when on Christmas Day in the early 70s he took us to a Chinese restaurant in uh, Calcutta. And I have, uh, have learned enormously from him in that time. But looking around the room, I can see that there are many people who have also learned enormously from Amartya, and I guess many people who will learn enormously from Amartya um, if they haven't started already. Um, the clarity and humanity of his ideas across a whole range of subjects is quite extraordinary. But above all, I think, it's the uh, profundity of what he has to say and the clarity with which that profundity comes through. Um, that is, I think, manifested in the people who claim that he's one of their own. Um, Bangladesh, uh, where he grew up, India, where he was born and studied and taught. Um, the UK, of course, we claim a big bit. And uh, United States and many, many other places. Similarly, universities from Presidency College in Calcutta, where he studied Delhi School where he taught his, of course, outstanding and brilliant years here at the London School of Economics, um, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, all places which claim him as their own. And much of Amartya's book is about plurality, plurality of ideas, plurality of, let me try that again, um, <laughs> plurality of ideas, plurality of ways of looking at things, plurality of of criteria, of perspectives. So I'm sure it's uh, Amartya can live quite comfortably with the plurality of people who claim him as their own. But we are definitely one of those, Amartya, and you're very welcome with us tonight. Thank you. That is um, absolutely wonderful for me to be here at LSE, to a totally unfamiliar building, uh, but a nice building, um, but a very familiar place. Uh, as Nick says, I spent many years um, here teaching, and then even after I went to the other side of the Atlantic, I used to come regularly in the summer with the sticker, which uh, Nick was then directing. Um, Actually, my wife, Emma, used to say that my geography of London is very good, excepting from any point A to any point B, the, my way of taking it is from, go, from A to go to LSE, and from LSE to go to B. <laughs> and that actually works. Uh, that's the way the French railways were constructed. It's not a bad way of doing it. You go to Paris and then go from there. Um, so I'm really absolutely delighted uh, that, uh, that um, I get the privilege of being here today. And, and see the new things happening in LSE. Now, the occasion, of course, is this uh, book of mine called The Idea of Justice. And um, the, I think to, today is meant to be formally the launch of the book, so I say, uh, I have to do something to do about it. Um, the question is often asked, who is interested in the issue of justice? And, um, so that is quite a straightforward answer can be given. Lots of people are. If you're a philosopher, that's been a very central issue in justice, going back at least 3,000 years, probably longer than that. Um, sociologists, economists, 
yes, public policy makers, yes, but general public too, even children. Um, I remember being noticing, and I don't think it was just because it's a family in which the word justice often came in. Uh, my son, then three, complaining about his elder sister, saying, Indrani is not being just to me. <laughs> and I can see that um, that's a kind of natural appeal force. And, and I think that's just right. Justice is with us, and we ought to see what we can make of it. Um, in the, uh, this, uh, I've done a couple of presentations here, and uh, you can begin the story of different ways of thinking about justice in different parts of the world. Um, I better keep track of the next turn timetable. Uh, uh, um, how many minutes have I done so far? <laughs> You've just started, I think. Okay. Um, we could add, and typically it made sense since the well-developed theories of justice really uh, can be found from the European Enlightenment onward to start locate yourself in 18th century Europe and then start from there and to think about two different ways of looking at it, common both in the Enlightenment. I will come to that if I do have time towards the end, but let me start somewhere far away, namely from, uh, from my own country, from India. And if you ask the question, what is the, the good way of beginning is to say, what's the Sanskrit word for justice? Well, you will find at least 20, 20 to 25 different words which have some pretension to being justice. But there are two words which are very straightforwardly translations of justice. One is niti, and that's concerned with things like this rule is just, these institutions are just, this behavior is just, and so on. And naya, which is the world is going justly. Now, it is possible, of course, that you may be trying to do all the right rules, and the world may still not go rightly, or it may be that the world may end up going lightly for various reasons which are not connected necessarily with your choosing the most optimum niti you can think of. So that's a distinction. Um, it's a thing of the biggest um, um, legal theorist in India of that period, that is, um, uh, you know, a little over 2,000 years ago, uh, substantially over 2,000 years ago, uh, Manu, he really concerned primarily with Niti and not Naya. And that's a quite a common tendency in the world. If you think about, to take a European um, comparison, think about Ferdinand I. Emperor Ferdinand I's remark. You might remember Emperor Ferdinand I was the Holy Roman Emperor who was, you might also recollect, neither an emperor nor Roman and especially not holy. But <laughs> he, his remark was, uh, which is often quoted, uh, that let justice be done even if the world perish. Now that is an absolutely niti-based statement, that let's do the right thing, even if the world ends up. Now I will tell you, look, if the world has perished, whatever else you might have done, you haven't certainly done justice to people who have just all gone. 
So I think that's a big distinction. So Manu is very much a uh, niti-based thing, even though there are, as I discuss in the book, excursion in the Naya. But then there are other schools of thought, for example, those who are concentrating, and this would be a point of some importance, on injustices in the world. And uh, there is a word which is often used called matsyanaya, which means the justice of the fish. And the, these uh, biologists have determined in ancient India that the big fish can eat up the small fish at any time uh, in freedom uh, without anyone stopping them. The small fish always live in danger of being preyed upon and being swallowed up by the large fish. And the Matsunaya analysis begins by saying, well, one thing justice demands is that the world shouldn't be like that. There shouldn't be people that who could be eaten up uh, and have no stability of their own. Now that you can see is definitely Naya-based reasoning, namely depends on what kind of world you're getting. No matter how good the rules are, if you end up in a situation when small fish feel insecure and can be eaten up by the big fish any time, then you haven't got justice. You haven't got justice in the sense of Naya. Now that distinction turns out to be quite central in understanding various contrasts across the world, in Europe, in Africa, and elsewhere. But let me come back to the European uh, contrast now. Um, European Enlightenment, 18th century, but a bit before that, Thomas Hobbes complaining about life of people being nasty, brutish, and short. And you need to do something about it. There emerges the idea of social contract. And if you're going to do have contract, you're trying to arrive at a position that people would all accept as being just. So you're looking for a just society. You're not asking for what would make the world a bit less unjust than it is now. You're asking for what would justice look like. And then what begins in the hands of, um, um, uh, uh, of Hobbes as a discussion about just society to be arrived at by a social contract, a hypothetical social contract, um, sort of goes into much bigger um, extensions uh, in the hands of John Locke, uh, Rousseau, and then ultimately Immanuel Kant. And the present theories of justice in the world are inheritors of that tradition. They ask the question, what the perfectly just world would look like? That's the question that Rawls's justice and fairness asks, unto which it gives an answer within its structure. But it doesn't entirely ask only in terms of perfectly just world, in terms of how the world is going. It asks, in line with Nietzsche, with perfectly just institutions, what can we do? What institutions would count as just? And once you've got the just institution, well, then you expect that people, since they have arrived at this contract to have these institutions, ought to behave in a way that it makes these institutions maximally effective. So you get the just institution, <coughs> ideal institution, the behavior accommodates and uh, is com entirely compliant, and presumably what emerges would be very good. And that's the way the, the reasoning goes in the Rawlsian story, and it's pretty much the story of all of the main theories of justice today. Ronald Dworkin, Robert Nozick, David Gauthier, Thomas Nagel, they differ from each other in their theory of justice in many different ways, but not in this respect. 
so much so that they can they all have this Hobbesian thing when Tom Nagel uh, one of the great philosophers of our time um, argues that there could not be no such thing as global justice he makes the point that for a global justice as Hobbes explained we need a global sovereign state because how could you set up all these institutions in the absence of that so therefore as he puts it the idea of global justice is a chimera, 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 what's the English pronunciation? What? Chimera? It's fine. Well, okay. Well, I take that to be the LSE pronunciation, chimera. Um, so that is a chimera, and that wouldn't work at all. So you need, and therefore, off goes all global justice, without any further discussion. Now, that's quite remarkable, given the fact that how many people across the world are worried about global justice. Now, on the other hand, if you went to Naya, what would you have? Well, you have a system, you have a line of reasoning where you're concerned with what are the injustices in the world, like Max and Naya, which you ought to remove. And lots of people were concerned with that in the Enlightenment too. Adam Smith concerned both, well, with many things, including unjust government regulation that restricts economic transactions, concerned with poverty, concerned with relative deprivation, concerned with illiteracy is not often recognized. He was a strong advocate of government intervention in, in not only making education free, but also compulsory at the time when it wasn't. And the advocacy was for removing these injustices. Was he claiming when you remove this injustice, the world would be perfectly just? No, he wasn't claiming that. He was claiming it would be a removal of injustice. It would be better from a justice point of view. So the mathematical relation here is not one of transcendence being unbeatable, or if you are very comparative in your mind, and which some philosophers will warn you against, superlative, and they would say superlative is not the same thing as transcendental, superlative is relational after all, that's true. But pure relational is better than, worse than, as good as, etc. Which is of course the subject matter of much of wealthy economic and social choice theory. Now Smith was in that line, Marquis de Condorcet, who was um, not only a theorist of the French Revolution, but a founder of the social choice theory, really in that period, to be revived by Kenneth Arrow in the 20th century, but as a, and several other French mathematicians were involved in that. But they're different kinds. Condorcet or Vauda may be mathematician, and Mary Wollstonecraft, definitely not one. But then she is concerned with slavery. Her first book, Vindication of the Rights of Men, um, is, is, a, is about, to a great extent, about um, removal of things like slavery. It's a letter addressed to Edmund Burke. He can't understand Mary Wollstonecraft said, how could, how could, um, I cannot begin to imagine, she says, how could Burke support American Declaration of Independence? And you, must wonder, you might wonder what's going on. Mary Wollstonecraft is the greatest revolutionary. Um, Burke is the father of British conservatism. And the father of British conservatism being criticized by the revolutionary women of that, woman of that time, the revolutionary woman of that time, for supporting the American Revolution, what's going on? What's going on is the idea that 
Buck doesn't address the issue of slavery. And how could you declare independence on behalf of white people in America without at the same time thinking about the slaves? So she's concerned with slavery. The second book, Vindication of the Rights of Woman, is of course about um, uh, the, the, uh, the deprivation of women, the subjugation of women, which later on John Stuart Mill would make it into a main cause and a, and a great book. And indeed, um, that is Mill, John Stuart Mill, is another contributor to this line of reasoning. Karl Marx is another. The end of his life in 1875, in the critique of Gotha program, he comes into the question about the perfect society, mainly because he's being very polemical, he's hitting at the, uh, at the, uh, at the Workers' Party in, in Germany and saying, well, they think that it's the same thing, that people are paid according to uh, their labor or people are paid according to their, but they think that that's all that's needed, but that's not what justice needs. The ultimate justice requires people being paid according to needs. It would be a lot better today if people were not exploited, if they got their labor's worth. But of course, it would be better still to have distribution according to needs. And then he pulls up his sock and says, well, we can't get that there, not for a while, and therefore we ought to work for uh, payment according to work, and, and then he talks about incentives uh, in a way that the Soviet Union didn't pay very much attention to, but there was a lot of that uh, in that discussion. Now, you can see all of these are very comparative pictures, and that is two things. One is concerned with the way people's lives are going, Naya as opposed to Niti, and not ideal Niti, but improvement in Naya. So that's the second trend. And what I try to, since most of the theories of justice are, uh, are in the first line, mine, which is solidly in the second, could be seen to be a bit of a departure. Not of my own, though, because like in every work of mine, I, um, when people try to say, look, you're not the first to argue about it, and that is my claim. I'm absolutely not the first. And my claim is that I'm in a long tradition. I have roots that go back 3,000 years, and there's a long, comparative now tradition. Now, given the time, I shouldn't elaborate too much on that, but just a few remarks connected with it. If you take the second view, you can start thinking about global justice, of course, because you are talking about more justice, less justice, and not a sovereign state. You don't need to have the United States of the world in order to get there. You have to see how people's lives are going. If like removal of slavery then, or the subjugation, gross subjugation of women then, if getting medicine available that can be cheaply produced and which can halt people's illnesses or cure them, if that could be made available across the world, it would be an improvement, even in rich countries. If somehow Obama manages to get universal health care in America rather than leaving 44 million people uncovered, well, that would be an improvement of, of Naya. That would be an improvement of justice, removal of an injustice. Similarly, if we could stop the, uh, the prevalence of torture, often practiced by the leading nations in the world, um, or we could change 
the continued maltreatment of women, and you can mention one thing after another, a uh, whole lot of ways that the world could be improved. These would be definitely improvement. Removal of injustice, improvement of justice. Would we get a perfectly just state from that? No, that's not the claim. That's not even, that is not even on the cards. Why isn't it in the, on the cards? Well, first of all, I think it's not on the cards because we could disagree on what a perfectly just society looks like. Some people might put more emphasis on the importance of liberty over other things, like equality of economic resources. Others might think that equality of economic resources is the central issue. Liberty could go take a second place. But they could all agree that removal of slavery, or people dying of illnesses for which cure exists, women being tortured and kept illiterate, and vast number of children growing up without school and without much food and being hungry across the world, including in my own country, India, despite the elimination of famine, is a violation of justice that can be removed. It could be changed. And it's this, these features that could figure in the, in the discussion about how the cause of global justice could be enhanced. First of all, justice locally, nationally, but also globally across the world. And the connections are very strong. At some, and I quote somewhere in the book Martin Luther King saying, injustice anywhere in the world is injustice everywhere in the world. What does it mean? It means that in some ways our lives are so interrelated. A point that was noticed many years ago in 1770s by David Hume uh, it's the, the other side of globalization. He was talking about early globalization. He said there was a time we didn't know about lives of others, and they didn't come into our consideration. But the more you know about them, you can't, the, as he put it, the boundaries of justice ever grow wider, because you can't leave them out once you know about them. So that's one way it comes in. You have to take into account, to say that you can't have a sovereign state of the world, and therefore global justice is dead simply wouldn't work. Um, I must say, since I was quoted Nagel on that, as the book draws quite positively on Nagel and lots of other things, I think he's one of the great philosophers, just as John Rawls was somewhat critical, I think he's probably the greatest political and moral philosopher of our time. And I don't apologize for criticizing people whom I think to be the best practitioners of the subject. But if the best practitioners end up in a situation that you can criticize well, then that's a strong reason for making that criticism. That's the way I tend to think about that. The second point is that the global context is very important for reasons that Adam Smith discussed. Adam Smith, by the way, invoked both the point. When he was going hammer and tong at, at East India Company's injustice in India, he was not invoking any sovereign state that encompassed Britain and India at that time. There wasn't anything like that. It was just the fact that there were people who were being maltreated, who didn't have famine, suddenly beginning to have famine. And as he said, that it's utterly unworthy to govern any territory. It's concerned with interests. But elsewhere in the book, in the, this is in the, in the Wealth of Nations, but in the theory of moral sentiment, which by the way, this is really an anniversary, 250th year, since its publication, 1759. Um, when he talks about it, he talks about parochialism. 
that if you're only looking within your boundaries, you would not recognize. You may be like Rawls, you know, think of a situation when you're not moved by your vested interest, but you may be in influenced by vested prejudices that, that are prevalent in, in that nation. As an example, he quotes, as he always does, the, the finest group of practitioners, namely Athenians, ancient Greece, that they all approved of, including Aristotle and Plato, infanticide, mainly because practice has made that the standard uh, rule, and they didn't quite recognize that the world was viable without it. Now, in order to get that, you have to think about a society in which that rule does not exist. Even at that time, there were such societies, but on top of that, later on, it has quite clearly emerged. Similarly, whether you think about the stoning of adulterous women in Taliban's Afghanistan, or you think about the jubilation of the capital punishment in Texas, um, you can ask the question whether a point of view coming from elsewhere may have a liberating role, not connected with the interest of other people, but because of broadening your horizon. So from all these points of view, global concerns are very important. Now my last two points, and then I will stop, are this one is that if you're concerned with, with how people's lives go, you have to think about how should it be accounted. Should it be in terms of their income? Should it be in terms of their freedom, what they're able to do? And quite a lot of the book is concerned with capabilities. Uh, Nick, Nick Stern, in his own work, has been concerned with empowerment. They tend to go in the same direction, namely the power and the freedom of the men and women to do what they would like to do and what they have reason to do. So that's, I, I'm not going to talk about that because, um, you know, um, it's it talked about quite a bit in the book, um, though that's not the main focus of the book, there's basically a couple of chapters on it, an 18 chapter book, but um, it's an important part of it. The second thing is that you don't have to agree um, on everything, as I mentioned, you don't have to agree on what the nature of just society is in order to take the next step. And I think if you press, you'll never get an agreement on, on many issues. And as an example, I gave an example, and with that I will end, of plurality, since Nick ended with plurality, I could end with plurality too. This is the story about a flute. And there are three children quarreling about it. And I think first I did it for a Harvard class, and I made it more dramatic by saying, you're about to go to a play and you're getting late and you want to do a quick decision. And well, one of the child says, look, Ade, I should get it because I'm the only one who plays the flute. And the other two don't deny it. And if you knew only that, and after all, you are trying to go to a play, you could have easily given it to the child one. Let's call him, I don't know, Alice. The second alternative scenario, a second, first, second child speaks first, and let's call him Bob. And Bob says, you know, let me tell you something. Um, the other two children are extremely rich, full of toys and amenities. I've got nothing. If I got the flute, it would be one thing I will have to enjoy. Others don't deny it. And if you knew only that, and nothing else, like A plays the flute, that Alice plays the flute, then you would have, could have easily given it to B. And the third scenario, C speaks up and says, you know, I made this loop, 
with a lot of effort. After months of effort, just when I finished, these two guys came along and tried to snatch it away from me. And again, if you knew only that, that Carla, let's say C, had made it, then you have a reason to give it to Carla and forget A and B, if that's what, if you knew that A, the, that Alice plays the flute and, and that Bob has no other resource and C had made it, there is an issue. Now, people would decide differently. Utilitarians will go one way. Libertarians in the uncomfortable company of Marxists will go to the third. Then uh, <laughs> give it to the people who have made it. Um, but the fact is that they will come very sanguine in, 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 in one direction. And I don't think it is wrong at this level to suggest that each of these are viable answers. That doesn't mean when you look at it in detail that a, a, a solution wouldn't emerge. Bob's deprivation may be so large that it may come to dominate everything. The Carla's work on that has been so engrossing for her life that you might think that that is really very important. And the fact that uh, Alice plays the flute and would entertain hundreds of people around might come into your story. So you may find a solution, but in general, at the level of principle, you can't turn down any of the principle. But what I'm arguing, you don't have to turn it down unless you begin in the unlikely program of trying to get a perfectly just society. A, to identify it, and B, to get there in one step. No, no such thing as one step is enough for me. You have to go the whole hog. Uh, if you're not doing that, then I think you have a theory which is concerned with justice, which is concerned with naya, which is concerned with enhancing justice, and which is concerned ultimately with both policies and institutions on one side and the behavior of human beings on the other. Well, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amartya. Um, in this part of the uh, story, um, I'd like to try to um, take forward in, or ask you to help us take forward um, the understanding of some of the ideas in the book, which is, after all, the idea of justice. And then I have another few questions on how we put those ideas to use in the making of the policies and the institutions, as, as you describe. Um, and I wanted to begin by asking if you could um, help us with the concepts and significance of different forms of language which overlap, which are not the same, and actually matter a lot to political and philosophical discourse and the way in which people see it. And that's the idea of uh, the ideas of justice, equity, and fairness. And, or as you hear it perhaps even more often, um, the idea of unjust, inequitable, and unfair. And uh, your own child was uh, very sophisticated in using, at that stage, the language of unjust. I think most children would have said unfair. Um, but when people talk about unjust, inequitable, or unfair, um, they carry different kind of weight with different kind of audience, and they mean different kinds of things. I mean, you yourself have written a very important 
set of um, one article itself, the quality of what, but uh, you've written extensively uh, on that. Uh, Rawls himself wrote about justice as fairness, obviously different <coughs> concepts and linking uh, one to the other. And in many ways, uh, to say something is unjust carries really quite powerful connotations. I mean, if you say, well, it's all these things are inequitable or unequal, people will tell you, well, there are reasons for inequity or inequality um, to do, for example, with productivity and the incentives which you mentioned in the context of Marxian theory. Um, if people say that's unfair, they say, well, life's unfair, you know, live with it. But if you say this is unjust or this is counter to natural justice, then it tends to have a very strong traction, and very high persuasiveness. And so I think it is important to clarify what the difference and the relationships between these ideas are. And uh, you are the person, I think, who's thought most carefully about the interrelationships between these different ideas. Um, thank you. That's a very interesting question. Um, I'll keep equity out, but just deal primarily with fairness and justice. Equity out because, after all, any theory of justice or fairness would have not only equity, but also other concerns, including efficiency, that you might have, you know, the let justice be done even if the world perish and everybody dies, has admirable equity in the sense that no one is more alive than anybody else. Uh, on the other hand, there can't be all that justice is concerned with, if you're concerned with now. So fairness of justice, and you're absolutely right to point out that Rawls locates his theory, which he called justice as fairness. It's not the only theory he has, but that's the main developed theory he has, and presented in his uh, big book on that, namely A Theory of Justice, and defended again later by pol in political liberalism. Justice is fairness. He takes fairness as the main idea in the way that you suggest, that fairness is more primitive. If you say unfair, that immediately appeals. And then you say, OK, from fairness, let's get to uh, the idea of justice. Now, I think there's a lot in that. The question that comes up is to what extent that distinction is, and as you again said, is not based, you said, on language, but it may be a particular language. As I, Berlin, used to grumble that this can't be a major theory, he told me, because um, many languages don't have two words, fairness and justice, as separate. English happened to have it because fairness came from Fager on the German side, and justice came on the Latin side. Uh, the French don't. And people will feel that the possibility of justice um, as fairness being translated in French as justice come justice. And that would have certainly worried many people as to whether a profound stuff statement was being made in that. <laughs> so I think one, so that was um, um, Berlin point, so don't focus so much on the language. So I, you know, since I was a, um, in those days somewhat younger, carrying gossip from one person to another, uh, I asked um, uh, Jack Rawls, what's his reaction to it? And he said, well, I don't take that very seriously because fairness and justice are two different words, but you don't concentrate on the, on the words only. Fairness has a certain association with it. 
and the French capture it in, in a certain way. And when it comes to justice, they capture it differently. So I'm just mentioning here, first thing to be a little cautious about putting too much focus on language itself. But I think basically the idea that fairness is to treat people um, in some ways uh, as in, 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 in the same way, which is seen as being fairly, is, is possibly quite um, foundational. And then, then you ask the question, so what does it tell us about justice? That's the way we all proceed. And I don't doubt that. That's the way I proceed too. On the other hand, the distinction will be that when you say, I don't think you could only say life is unfair, stick with it. You could say, look, it's not only unfair, it's unfair in a needless way. I can change it. Why do you do that? You know, what's the point? Uh, I mean, the kind of examples come up where we might think that it's not necessary to do it. I mean, the, you and I have talked in the past, you may not recollect discussion in the theory of penalty in economics, that one way of stopping people's feeding is to find them. And if you, you know, there's arbitrariness in it, there's unfairness in it. A chap driving at 50 miles an hour gets caught, another one driving at 60 miles an hour is not caught within city limits. If there's unfairness in it. But you might say, well, it's unfair, but we have to live with it. And that's one way of doing it, since you can't stop every car all the time. But the cheapest way of doing it, as economists well know, of course, is a system whereby you don't do that at all, excepting once in four or five years, but you don't know which moment it would be. And when you caught a speeding chap, you take him out and kill him. <laughs> now, that in terms of expected utility gives you about the same kind of, um, well, first of all, everyone has the same. You don't know which who will be caught. Yeah. And, uh, and expected utility-wise, you know, very low probability of being executed as opposed to high probability of being prevented from driving again, and so on. So you can begin to think about that. But then we might say, look, that is bloody unfair, you know. It's, it's not only unfair, but really un atrociously unfair. So there are degrees of unfairness. So I, what I, the way I would respond is that just as there are degrees of justice, more just, less just, they're more fair, un more unfair. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would link up this question. So I, I think it's a very rich question, but that's the direction I'd go. Yeah, I, I do remember that conversation. Um, <laughs> Perhaps not all of you will have seen um, work by Gary Becker on the economics of crime and punishment, where he tried to um, he tried to argue that the actual punishments that we see in relation to offences um, come in a very natural way from the economic theory of externalities, and the more damage that is done, the higher the penalty, which is a theory we teach in our first and second year economics courses on externalities and trying to show that this was a story about uh, uh, that could justify and explain the kinds of punishment levels that we have. And for the reasons that Amartya said, that's, that's actually a mistake. It throws, as much of economics does, some um, light on the issue, there's some insights there, but it doesn't tell you why you don't do what Amartya has just described. And, and many um, 
students of jurisprudence, and we've got many lawyers in the room, I should be a little careful here, um, see things like retribution as not some dreadful story of um, how wickedly you act and eye for an eye and so on, but actually a theory of proportionality which is about justice. It stops actually retribu you know, re retribution, the notion of retribution stops you. It's an argument against doing that kind of thing. And I think perhaps another example of why there are so many different ways of looking, looking at justice. But the, the second question, Marcia, I want to ask was about um, the idea of capabilities, which you've been explaining and showing how powerful it can be in uh, understanding things um, for 20 or 30 years now. Um, others have used language like empowerment. Um, you've written on development as freedom. Um, how would you place those ideas of capabilities and empowerment and perhaps freedom in the context of contractarian and comparative approaches? How important is it to have those ideas of capability and empowerment in order to discuss well the language of um, the ideas of contractarian justice and comparative justice? I mean, do you, I mean, a lot of those arguments went on without actually using the kind of language of capability and empowerment, although they probably did, did use yeah. ideas of liberty and freedom. Right. Well, I think um, I'd say two things. First of all, uh, capability is one aspect of freedom, of course. It's not the only aspect, um, because there's also a question of the freedom of processes and not just outcomes. I mean, we are concerned with, in my book, I use the word realizations as opposed to outcomes, not to get into a trap where people say, well, you are a quote-unquote consequentialist. You don't worry about how things come about. It makes a difference. But I don't think that's the case. Um, we are concerned about realizations fully. When somebody says, I want to win this election, but not just that, I want to will win this election fairly. Well, that's, that is, that's process, not process independence. And similarly, you could say, um, 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 you know, I, I get very upset when people starve. Uh, and and you say, rightly so. And you say, well, what about this guy who's fasting for a religious reason? You say, well, I won't call it starving. But in terms of ultimate result under nourishment, it's the same. But in one case, it's volition. In the other case, it's compulsion of, of poverty. So we make a distinction between that. Now, and the processes could be very important. I'm, I'm mentioning it since a lot of people I see um, in the reception of the book, which, of which I'm very positively very pleased, uh, but uh, uh, have tended to see it very much in terms of capability, which is a basic idea. But there is also the fact that we don't want to capability is not the only thing. I mean, let's consider if capability is what kind of life you can lead. Um, uh, we know, for biological reason, women live longer than men if they're given um, equal care at each age group have a lower mortality rate. There used to be a lot of debate on that, but that's pretty much resolved, by the way. Even in the uterus, female fetuses do better than male fetuses do. Um, and this is, on the other side, more male fetuses are conceived, like 109, compared with 100 female, and more females are born, like 105, compared with 100. And then, by the time the life has been fully lived, this other way around, 
switch around. But in order to make equality of capability, you could then say, well, we ought to give women less treatment than men uh, for the same illnesses. That would be a good way of getting to equality of capability. But the reason why it would appear not only wrong, but totally ridiculous, is because we don't regard the ultimate state to be the only thing. We are looking at what, we, what I call comprehensive outcomes and capabilities redefined to take that into account. So that's a clarification that's worth making since, since that question has come up in the context of the book. But how do you make a distinction? Well, I think the capabilities also bring out, quite aside from the fact that I believe it's the right space, right variables in terms of which to think about justice um, in this broader form in which I've just described. Um, if you were to say, what would be perfectly just society like? Now, everyone has capability, perfect capability. Now, we know that that won't be the case. Uh, live as long as people can possibly live. How many diseases get eliminated, etc. I mean, you can see the mind boggles to think about a perfectly just state in terms of capabilities. On the other hand, better capability is it's extraordinarily easy. There is a crying shame that one third of the African kids in East Africa die before the age of five, and that could be changed, and that would be an enhancement of capability and thus of justice. So I think the, that's not the main argument for capability, but it so happened that, aside from the fact that it's the right space, I believe, it also helps to say how difficulty root the dominant theories of justice, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, Rawls, Dworkin, Nozick, um, uh, 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 Gauthier, Nagel, a whole lot have been concerned with a line which is very difficult to pursue if you take capability seriously. On the other hand, the alternative line, like the, the, the Smith, Condorcet, Wilson, Kraft, John Stuart Mill line, it doesn't suffer from that problem. So there's a more natural flow from yeah. capability to the comparative, comparative approach than, yeah. than to the other one. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the claim. Now the third and last question I had on the ideas is really to pick up a question which you put uh, very directly with your quote from Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, may not be word perfect but roughly speaking. Um, but that is quite a difficult thing for people to accept. Um, you get very insular view of justice, you get the idea that justice begins at home. People have, or charity begins at home, but I mean, they slide from one to the other. Um, and many people have spoken about the idea of distance. The further something is from you, uh, perhaps in time and talking about intertemporal issues and intertemporal uh, justice or evaluations, or geographical, uh, something that happens a long way away, you regard as of less importance, or distance in some other dimension, whether it be religion or or whatever. But the idea is that uh, the more important these ideas that you're developing apply with more traction to people closer to you in time or space or on some other dimension. How do you deal with that kind? Suppose somebody said, well, I hear you, Amartya, I hear you, Martin Luther King, but that just doesn't sound very plausible to me. How would you explain it to them? 
Well, I'd uh, probably use three devices. <laughs> One would be to argue that whether your thinking is limited because the public reasoning so far has not gone in that direction. And it is increasingly going in that direction today. I mean, and again, as you recognize, I'm not looking for a perfect state ever. And I think the kind of um, protests across the world that we have seen coming from so-called anti-globalization movement, which is not really anti-globalization, indeed, it is the most globalized movement in the world today. Um, but uh, the, the, the anti-globalization movement is about injustice across the world, that's what it is. And it would have been very hard to predict that some years ago. And I think David Hume was sensing that what's happening is a broadening of our borders of thinking. It won't go at one leap, and it won't eliminate all the distinctions. I mean, you will have more concern with family, more concern with neighborhood, more concern perhaps with nation than with the world. But on the other hand, it isn't that you have no concern with the world. Somewhere a balance would have to be drawn. Mm -hmm. And the question, the public debate would have to be where is the right balance? Martin Luther King was trying to redraw the boundaries. So that's point one to make. Point two to make is that it's the, um, you may think um, the last person I would like to bring in as providing evidence in my direction is Jesus Christ, but I will. Uh, that's what the Good Samaritan story is about, of course. Uh, you might think there are different ways of understanding uh, the Good Samaritan story. One is universal love is important. But that's not what happens in Luke. What happens is there's this lawyer with whom Jesus is arguing. And the lawyer points out that what you owe is to your neighborhood. And that's, by the way, the Book of Common Prayer so concerned. That's what we, what we learned. Is to is to is to be uh, you know is to treat your neighbors well. Um, but Jesus is asking an intellectual question of very great magnitude by the good Samaritan story. There is a guy who is lying wounded, as you probably know the story, uh, and the locals, the the Levite and the priest, don't help. Someone far away and not very well thought of by Israelis. Israelites, namely Samaritan, looked down upon, comes and helps. And the, the way that that conversation ends is not by Jesus saying, was it, do, was it right what Samaritan did? Um, that's not the question he asked. He asked the question, when the wounded person reflects on what had happened, who would he think was his neighbor? And the lawyer and well, I guess he would think that the Samaritan was his neighbor. And of course, Jesus rests his case there. So the point is that the idea of neighborhood, it depends on relationship. By being in a relationship that Samaritan has provided, he has become a neighbor. So there is an element of arbitrariness on our neighborhood. I mean, this is, of course, my... Um, There's a, uh, my, um, I don't know whether to reveal names or not, but my, uh, uh, a very famous man, a warden of my, former warden of my college, uh, explained to me, uh, of my Oxford college, not my Cambridge college, uh, explained to me that um, 
he said, you, you, you probably think, you probably think that Christians do, he told me, that the, uh, uh, that the um, Levites and the priests acted badly. And I said, yes, I do think that. And he said, um, what do I think? I think he acted badly. And why did he act badly? And he asked me, because he would be very disappointed if you don't. He said, I'll tell you why. Because he had done no harm to the wounded person. He owed no help to the wounded person. So he should have gone right past the wounded person, rather than have a sense of shame, which made him cross the street and go to the other side. That showed a weakness of imagination. The right-thinking person will go right past the wounded man without helping because he had done nothing wrong to this person. <laughs> so I think that indicates a different uh, a kind of point of view of not only not neighborhood, and that's my third point, but the other links, namely, if I have done some harm to someone, I owe something, not, not even if he is a neighbor, it doesn't matter, as long as I've not done harm to it. So I think we draw these boundaries very differently. Have we done any harm? Big thing in, 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 in lots of life and jurisprudence. Um, uh, do, we, do we want to do things only for our neighbor, who is our neighbor? These are the questions. And have we really thought about it enough? Which are questions that, the, that uh, Martin Luther King and Mandela and, and, and Tutus and the Gandhis and others would ask, I think. Marja, others are, are very keen to ask you questions, I know. So I'm just going to ask you one or a group of questions just as one. Um, and this is about the use of your ideas. Now, you're increasingly seen as the, um, the guiding uh, spirit um, for the rejuvenation or recreation or the reviving of the new left. And indeed, there was an issue of the New Statesman, the one that's just come out, and Biomarch's book first, but the, um, which essentially was developing, developing that theme. And one of the worries which some of us have is that if you're a, it's, it's, it's about you, not, 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 not about ourselves, is that a rich, uh, occasionally complex, but often simple set of ideas uh, can be very widely misinterpreted and, and misused. And let me give you one example, and, and you might want to comment on whether, you know, I've, I've missed the point or others have missed the point. Um, your ideas of capability, language of empowerment often used, um, are seen to be offering an intellectual basis for the powerful control of um, inequalities of wealth, for example, in our society. Now, there are many arguments that uh, are relevant here, but the idea is that wealth and position bring power and should be controlled for that reason. You've had Alan Milburn's recent uh, committee he led, which was about the rigidity of the structures of our society so that our professions are populated by the daughters and sons of the uh, people um, in those professions, similarly getting into um, certain universities. Not a hasten to add the London School of... Uh, we get all sorts in here. Um, but these are about... Uh, arguments about the distribution of power and they're predicated often or increasingly anyway and certainly in the example of the New Statesman on 
ideas of capability and empowerment. And that seemed to me to be a potential misuse in the sense that if I learn to read, my capabilities have gone up. But it would be difficult to argue that I have necessarily, because my empowerment has grown, I have necessarily disempowered somebody else. So I, I wanted to ask how you would react to the way in which some of your arguments have uh, started to be used in terms of um, new and very powerful arguments for redistribution. Now I know that you and I share many arguments in favour of certain kinds of redistribution, but the point here is how do you react to what you've been writing now and what you've been dwelling on uh, in a very deep and thoughtful way on capability in all these years, being used in the kind of way that I've been describing? Well, it's a very deep and very difficult question. Um, let me say first, um, I think to think of it as a zero-sum game, namely the gain of one and with the loss of the other, is of course a mistake. Uh, and that's not the way we tend to think about um, enhancement of capabilities in terms of equity, because equity doesn't necessarily require you to assume the same cake. And I think this is the way people think too. And, and I think the, to some extent the redistribution of income has been a wrong rhetoric to use. Because uh, you, know, you ask the guy, would you like to give away 1% of your income for poorer people? But it's very abstract, but quite enough if you ask, are you ready to contribute to Oxfam to, for feeding people? Or, removing illiteracy, etc. you get a much more positive response. We have seen it across the world. Mm. Part of the reason is because they don't think that it's just the same amount of wealth going to one to the other, no matter how laudable it is. Uh, but it's actually doing something. It's generating something, generating education power, and generating um, less hungry people, uh, more productive, more happy people, etc. So I think the, the, there are some uh, image is a mistake, and that applies to capability, and it would apply even to income, though of course in case of income it's easier to think of it as a given case. And I think one of the advantages of capability is that you don't have to think in those terms, so that more power of someone is not necessarily less power of anybody else. Sometimes it could be, when you are deposing uh, a monarch with tyrannical rule, and that it would be. But in many cases, it wouldn't be. So that's first thing. Secondly, of course, it is the case that wealth and income are important. But as Aristotle noted a long time ago, nearly 2,500 years ago, uh, wealth is not the thing that we are seeking. It's the very first chapter of Nicomachean Ethics. For it is merely useful for something else. And so that something else is what you ought to seek, and that's what takes him to his discussion about eudaimonia and so on. Now, I think what we are arguing here is that, yes, we may be interested in inequality and wealth and income, but it's not just because wealth inequality per se is bad, but it generates other kinds of inequality, which worries us greatly. If it didn't, then it would be quite a different story. And the third point here is that 
wealth and income, while it is an important determinant of capability, is not the only determinant. And that's a hugely important point for politics, including British politics and new left. If you think about poverty, now if you take the view, take disability. Now, it took me when I was working on that some years ago, three or four years ago, it came to me as a surprise that um, of the six billion people in the world, about a billion people have substantive disability of one kind or another. Uh, seeing, hearing, moving around and so on. A really big difference. Now, if you try to define poverty in terms of low income, you could say, yeah, that's a problem because people with disability can't earn so much income. And that was one of the points that you might remember your and my common friend Tony Atkinson made in his 1969 book. The, and that's a very important point. But then there's the same thing. Supposing for the disabled people you create the same income. Well then you, they have the same income but they're still disabled and they can do much less with the money than the able people can do. Their lives are still deprived. So you have to go beyond it. Disability itself is a capability handicap and which cause. And there was a very interesting thesis written by a, a German young student there called Wilke Kuklis who alas died of cancer shortly after her PhD completion. But it showed that if you looked at poverty in Britain, that the kind of something like 18% poverty, families affected by poverty, would go to 21% if you took income deprivation. But if you ask the question, how much extra income would you need for having adequate prosthesis, even though the prosthesis will not make you see things, but you at least can go around. So you still remain deprived, but at least reduce the deprivation. That jumps from 21 to 43%. So that the bulk of problem is arising not from the income earning space, but from the income using space, from other things. So I think, um, you know, I am in politics on the left, and so if the left is interested, I'm delighted. But the, the, uh, but the, the important thing is to go beyond the income. And, and some of them do, of course. Some of them spend a lot of time doing just that. So I think that's the, I'm glad you asked the question because it's an issue of great importance, it's an issue of importance to my country where I was criticized for being, criticizing the left just before, well, last year, which came before the election and the left didn't do very well. Uh, nothing to do with me, I might say. <laughs> On the other hand, I did think that for, a, for, for the left parties, not to be worried about the fact that India had more undernourished children, not only total, but, for ca but, but, but proportionately to its population than, than, than uh, the average African country and than pretty much any other country in the world. That if that doesn't worry you and if you're worried only about whether US-India nuclear deal might compromise the sovereignty of India, uh, I can I begin to get worried about it. I would like to draw people's attention to capabilities and what I think the left is severe about. Not just the left, but after all the ancestry of that includes all the names I mentioned. Smith thought to be very right wing, but of course he always saw himself pretty much as a radical, which he was. Condorcet was a French revolutionary. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was a pioneering feminist. Uh, John Stuart Mill not only was a libertarian, described himself as a socialist. Karl Marx was thought to be left, 
And so you get a whole lot of, there is a long left heritage, and if left doesn't take that seriously, who, who will? <laughs> right, thank you, Marjit. We'll spend our last 15 minutes or so with questions uh, from you to Amartya. Uh, I think perhaps we can take three at a time, and please keep them, uh, please keep them short. There's uh, one down here, please. The mic uh, here. Through there. Thank you. So if we could, we'll do three at a time, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, my name is Julian Daly. I would like to ask you a question about the fact that over the last few hundred years, we've generally had more and more energy, uh, as well as other resources. But you need energy to get resources, and that has, in some respects, helped poverty and has certainly allowed us to develop a planet that has seven billion people on it. We are now almost certainly entering an age where we will at least see the decline of global petroleum output um, forever. And um, there will be great problems trying to substitute for that, and there will be other problems with other forms of energy as well. Um, doesn't, isn't that going to have a profound effect on ideas of justice as well as development and poverty? Thank you. Um, well, it sounds absolutely exciting, your book, and I'm longing to read it. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the relationship between... May, you have to hold it closer. Oh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the relationship between these two strands of theorizing that you described. Because I was thinking about uh, Nick's question on fairness and justice. And given that justice comes from the Latin and fairness from the German, it seems to me that justice has has more to do with institutions and procedures, formal procedures and rules than fairness does. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm right about that, but that just intuitively. And it struck me thinking about these two strands. Don't you need some kind of institutional theory of justice to get the more relation, for the relational theory of justice to work? So doesn't there have to be two theories of justice, don't they both have to somehow combine? And, uh, lady just behind Mary there. Lin chon Lin from the University of Amsterdam. Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, I'm doing a PhD research on uh, uh, the question whether contracts that uh, fundamentally impair capabilities of third parties should be invalid under European contract law. And I was wondering whether uh, you would consider contract law to be an institution that has a responsibility to promote uh, justice. And if so, um, uh, how that relates to your uh, ideas on the obligation of effective power. I think an example of the dimensionality of the response that your you get in your audiences. Uh, yeah. Please, Amartya. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful to, uh, to have such um, tremendous, as you said, dimensionality. Um, energy. <laughs> energy. Uh, I think your question is right. Um, um, the impoverishing effect of energy uh, depletion uh, will be an important factor to consider. Um, I think we, there are many diffi difficult things to determine here. There are some who think that the energy use could be uh, moved in the direction of solar, wind, uh, 
fusion, all other kinds of things. So it really, to a great extent, will depend on what view you take. But certainly we are concerned with that. But that's a different time for a problem with which Nick has been concerned with, namely global warming, where the petroleum disappearing is possibly quite a good thing, actually. It, it reduces the warming effect. But I think what you're pointing to is that there's no way we can leave the environment out of account in this. And I think it's also very important to take environment into account in, um, uh, in dealing with issues of justice in terms of our values, like the um, extinction of species, for example. That it's not just because we think that the species have a right to be considered, that's an issue, but it's just that as a human being, I might, I'm not concerned only with my well-being. I'm also concerned about how the world goes. And if I take the view that it would be a crying shame if the um, spotted owls were eliminated, extinct, became extinct, um, it's not because the existence of spotted owls affects my life. I've never seen a spotted owl, and it doesn't affect my life. But I still do think that would be a terrible thing to happen. And so it doesn't have to be parasitic in the way quote-unquote rational choice theory has made us think that you can't think of rationally without it being connected with your well-being somehow. So I think you're raising a very important question, and it, it is a huge reach. Use of energy, the impact of energy on the global warming and the global environment and other species, all those questions will be coming in. Um, on the subject of uh, Mary's question is certainly right. I think first thing to say institutions are very important for justice, certainly. That's not being doubted at all. If you say the institution of slavery should be abolished, that's a very important point. But I think one point that Mary Wollstonecraft makes, which is very powerful and has not been often noticed, is the fact that she's asking for women deprivation to go to be to be reduced and eliminated, but not just by institutional reform, but more public discussion, more behavioral reform, more understanding. So it's not just institutions. The preface of my book, the very beginning of the book, um, begins by quoting from Great Expectations of Charles Dickens, where Pip is grumbling about the injustice that he has suffered in the hands of his sister, Estella. Now, he's not decrying the institution of family. It's just that Estella has treated him very badly. So it is possible to be unjustly treated without the institution being wrong. And that's why institutions are important. You have to go beyond it. That's the point I'm trying to make. In the same way that Mary Wollstonecraft did. She is on one side, the book is addressed to, to, uh, to a French nobility member saying that the rights of men, quote unquote, of the French, have to take, pay greater attention to women, but then again saying it's not just a question of the legal right, but education, public discussion, everything else. It's a very visionary book for that reason, which is also one of the central books on which I draw. The third point about the contract law. You know, contract law is very important. It's, it's an institution. Good contract law can generate a good society in many ways. But what the difference would be that I wouldn't define justice in terms justice for a society in terms of the justice of the contract law. That is justice in a very particular context, 
in very limited context, and it's an important context, but it's very limited. But judging things, even in the broader context, contract law's effectiveness will have a role because you may not be able to run good industries, you may not be able to run a good economy without the contract laws being there and being well exercised. We do know that the Industrial Revolution was greatly helped by the fact that the contract became easier to enforce, and then the behavioral change by which every time you didn't have to enforce it by going to court became part of, Smith discussed it beautifully, that it became part of the habit that you followed rather than being taken to court to deal with it. So I think it belongs there, but it isn't, as it were, the central element of, of justice. Um, in, for uh, geographical fairness, uh, if we could go to the back of the, back of the room. Um, three questions, please. Uh, the lady uh, just uh, there with her hand raised. And then uh, this gentleman here. And this gentleman here. Uh, come down, please. If you come down, uh, could you raise your hand again, please? Yeah, this lady here, please. Thank you. Um, I have a question in regards to your comment about the environment. And my question is, why, in the last 40 years, we've seen a significant increase in harmonization of environmental standards. Why do you think it is that we haven't seen the same significant impact of human rights standards? And a gentleman, it was a green shirt there. Yeah. Yes, please. Oh, they, they've both got green shirts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, why don't we come down the hill? Uh, this gentleman, the, the slightly more, I don't know how to describe it, brighter green shirt. <laughs> I apologize for the green shirt. Um, um, I, I wanted to ask you how uh, you could uh, relate your Niti and Naya treatments of justice to uh, affirmative action, especially in the context of historical discrimination as happens, say, in India with the caste-based quotas or in the United no, States. You, I, I can't hear you properly. You, you have to get it close to your mouth. I'm sorry. Um, um, I wondered how you could relate your Niti and Naya treatments of justice to uh, affirmative action, especially in the context of historical discrimination as happens in India with the caste-based quotas and in the US. OK. Um, I have a question about, um, well, the theories of justice. Uh, what do you think about the stability of justice? We can converse to justice, we can stay there, or we will always be fluctuating around injustice, justice, injustice, justice, and that cycle. Thank you. It's a terrible world, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, um, let me um, go backwards, uh, beginning with the stability of justice. You know, that question is particularly important if I'm concerned with, primarily with perfectly just society. Then we say, this is perfect justice, is it going to be stable? You're asking, as it were, you're outdoing Rawls and Hobbes and Kant by saying, ah, don't just ask for perfectly just society, ask for stable perfectly just society. So that's a kind of even one thing above the um, level of reflection which, which I've been able to reach. Since I'm concerned with improving justice, I think removal of slavery 
has tended to be fairly stable. We hope, one hopes removal of subjugation of women would be. Uh, the making the world literate may have some stability. The countries which have achieved it tend to assume it, tend to assume that they will continue and have very little fallback. The only example I know of is Tanzania, where there was this kind of great movement at one stage connected with politics, and then the schools disappeared because they were set up not by institution. And Mary's point about institution comes in. The institutions were needed instead of that they are done as a kind of campaign. But by and large, improvements tend to have that picture of stability. But you're right to ask the question, absolutely right. Um, on the affirmative action thing, um, affirmative action is, of course, about um, a, a affirmative action takes the form of niti to achieve a naya. The justification is never that in itself it is good. In itself it's good to prefer minority candidates or African-Americans for fire brigade jobs to take the case that came up in, in the congressional hearing about the new Supreme Court judge possibility of but to, uh, you have to ask, what would it do? What is the result? And that's a good discussion. Um, Stephen Baer's last book, uh, already existing Supreme Court judge, discusses why consequences are extremely important in judging any of the law and the intention, because the intentions were connected with achieving some result. So I would say niti is the form it will take, because affirmative action will be a niti. On the other hand, the, you have to judge what effect it is having. There is a marvelous article by Ned Phelps um, called, um, uh, it's, uh, it's something like rationality behind racism, uh, and, or rationality behind uh, racism, sexism, he uh, discusses that. Namely, it's a kind of problem that supposing you're trying to appoint people, and you happen to know that African-Americans are, by and large, worse educated than, than the whites are. Now, you have no prejudice against African-Americans. You're trying to get the best guy to a job. But the chap comes, the only thing that's staring at your face is this person's color. You don't know, you can't, have a, you can't go back to the school, you don't know anything else about him. On the basis of color, if you did a, a, a kind of probability distribution, you'd end up preferring the white guy. Not because you prefer whites over non-whites, but the non white is more likely to have been better schooled. But that means a better schooled, very well schooled, LSE trained African American will not be hard. And that's, that's a, so in order to analyze that, and same thing could be done with gender, in order to analyze that, you have to say what the effect of that rule is. And of course, Ned's point, Ned Feltz's point in this case was, though he didn't, not being as radical as Nick and I are, he didn't proceed very much along that line, was to argue that you will have to have something like affirmative action in order to cope with the natural bias that comes from the way information comes bunched together in terms of what we see and what we can tell about the candidate in an imperfect world. So it's really very concerned with Naya. And um, is that, um, uh, was there a, what was, oh, uh, the human rights and environment. I think you're more optimistic in thinking that uh, the environment had become so widely accepted. I wish it were. But had it been, you would be right in asking the question, 
Why not human rights? Well, it depends on you. Uh, that is, it depends on agitating about human rights, just that it depends. I believe that you overestimate the extent of environmental standards that come to be accepted. Uh, I, I think there are huge lot of debates to be faced still. And it's connected with the way we see it, with what we see to be does China and India have a right to pollute the world a bit more now since they haven't done any as Europeans and Americans have done over the last 200 years? Or does China and India have a little bit more light, right to pollute more in the aggregate because per capita is still lower? Or China and America had no right at all to go in this direction because by the time countries we are not speaking about yet, namely Africa, starts industrializing, then they would have not only the sins of Europe and America, but also the sins of India and China and Brazil and South Africa to face. So all these questions have to be still faced. And these are complex questions. Human rights are also complex questions. But you know, I've been a human rights activist, and it was in the days when I was president, honorary president. I didn't do very much for it. But I was on the president of Oxfam for three years. And we did move increasingly in the human rights direction. And we did have some effect too. It isn't Human Rights Watch. On the other hand, it's not just famished people. It's also concerned with human rights. So we have, to, we have to work in that direction, you and I, in order to make human rights perspective more widely understood. Thank you very much, Amartya. Um, I'm afraid we don't have any time for any more questions, but I just wanted to thank you very briefly, Amartya. Um, I'm also going to ask you to stay in your seats whilst Amartya and I leave. Um, um, Amartya is, of course, royalty. I am not. Um, but the point is, there's a point. The point is so that Amartya can get to the, his seat in the foyer where he can sign the books. Um, I do want to thank you, Amartya. The universities of the world that have sought your services knew, of course, that you were a very great uh, economist and a very great philosopher. But the students who've been at those universities have found out that you're also a very great teacher. And uh, that, I think, has been so clear tonight, and it's so clear in your book. Um, Idea of Justice is not only a splendid book uh, in terms of thoughtful, scholarly, well-written, important in ideas. I think it's going to be a very important book in many ways, including in um, the politics of the next few years. But I think it will be still more than that, Amartya. I think it's going to be an important book in the uh, philosophy and economics and political philosophy of the coming decades. So do buy it. Uh, do buy it on the day of the launch. It'll be very valuable. Um, I ought to say that, and Penguin would never forgive me for it, it's more the cost-effective way of re reading a book, of course, is to borrow it from a library. And that's why he's also seen as one of the great uh, humanitarians. <laughs> so, Amartya, thank you deeply um, from all of us. And I hope you'll like to share in uh, giving Amartya a round of applause. <laughs>